Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bible, if you would, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. At one point in human history, it was possible to keep up with the growing accumulation of information. In fact, as recently as 1300 A.D., there were only 1,338 volumes in the Sorbonne Library in Paris. By the year 1670, the library at Oxford University had over 25,000 books. And today, the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. has 142 million books, manuscripts, and documents. Even a person who has a very specialized area has trouble keeping up today. I read that we have 487 billion gigabytes of digital information. I don't even know what that means. But I'm told that it doubles every 18 months. The average person reads six books a year. How many average people we have here? The average person reads six books a year, and more than 200,000 new books are published every year. So you know how long it would take you if you're average? Just to read the books that are published this year? Over 33,000 years. Get busy. We live in an increasingly complex world. As knowledge increases, technology increases. I used to be very into golf. Now I just play golf periodically. Some of you have taken me out to play golf now. And we go out to play golf and you come up to my ball. And you pull out your little GPS. I don't know what it is. You point it at the flag and you say, Dan, you're only 138 yards away. Now, I never knew that in the past because they only have the little markers on the fairway and I'm never on the fairway. (laughs) You're only 138 yards away. Of course, you're in jail in all these trees, so you don't have a shot anyway. But we have GPS. We are mapping the human genome. We are cloning animals. We are transplanting human organs. In fact, we are talking about growing human organs. At this moment, we have two high-tech rovers driving around like little hot rods on the face of Mars. That's complicated stuff. Not surprisingly, religion has gotten more and more complicated too. Have you noticed? Religious books, religious beliefs proliferate. New theories are propounded. New groups are formed. In the realm of Christianity alone, how many denominations are there? I looked on Wikipedia, which is where I get my information. 
they said there are about 38,000 Christian denominations. I tell you what, that tells me that the person who is seeking Christ is looking at a puzzle. The person who is seeking Christ is looking at this maze of ideas and groups. And as a believer, it can get complicated too. Because the more I mature and the more I study Scripture, the more I have a tendency to use words like dispensationalism, premillennialism, consubstantiation. I love to use those words and then look at the confusion in other people's eyes. And it feeds my pride because it's complicated. It's complex. Let me tell you something. For a Christian, it is a challenge to keep it simple. In fact, let me correct that. It's not just a challenge. It is essential to keep it simple. It is life or death to keep it simple. It is the front lines of the battle to keep it simple. It is the greatest threat to you as a Christian to keep it simple. Notice how Paul says it in verse 3 of chapter 11. But I am afraid. Paul doesn't say that often. Paul says, I am scared. I am afraid. This is important. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from what? From the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Let's assume we had a graph with uh, those uh, things that you have with graphs. What do you call those things, the lines? Axis. I knew that. Just testing you. Say we had two axes on our graph, and at the top we had simple, at the bottom we had complex, and then on one side we had easy, and on the other side, we had hard. Simple, complex, easy, hard. Let's say we were talking about a car. In the one quadrant, the one that would be simple and easy, we would put washing a car. In the quadrant that was simple and hard, we would put pushing a car. Very simple, but very hard. In the quadrant for complex and easy, we would say driving a car. And in the quadrant that said complex and hard, building a car. Now, with that graph, where would you put Christianity? Is it simple or complex? Is it easy or is it hard? And as I thought about that, in the light of verse 3, I came up with four statements I want to share with you today. Four things that we can say about that, and then I want to defend those statements. Number one, it is the simplest thing 
you will ever hear. Amidst all the maze of ideas and churches and voices, the Bible is clear there is only one church. Not one individual church, but one universal church. It's not made up of buildings. It's made up of people who have entrusted their life to Jesus Christ. There is only one church. There is only one way to God. There is only one message, and that message is simple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul begins that chapter by saying, I want to tell you the gospel that I preach. I want to tell you the gospel that people are believing and receiving and standing in are being saved by. I want to tell you. And we get out our notebooks and we say, okay, I'm ready. Tell me. We're, we're going to write it down. i got plenty of pages here. Go ahead. Tell me the gospel. And Paul says, this is it. That Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again. And he's alive today. That's it. You don't need a notebook. Jesus died for you, for your sins. He died, he was buried, he was risen, and he's alive today. That's the gospel. And yet people try to complicate it. People try to tell you that only the religious elite can understand it. In fact, for years, people were told not even to read your Bible. Let the religious elite tell you what it means. You can't understand it. It's too deep. Only those who have a theological degree can understand it and explain it. Or you've got to have a series of classes to understand the gospel and become a Christian. In fact, there's a movement today, a very deceptive movement today. It goes under the title, The Emergent Church. In fact, I've got a friend, Brian McLaren, who is uh, one of the primary leaders of that group. Sadly, he will tell you today that the gospel is too complex to understand. It's too difficult to understand the gospel. And if you think you understand the gospel, you're arrogant. I understand the gospel, but I'm not arrogant. The only reason I understand the gospel is because the gospel is simple. There is nothing complex. It is the most simple thing you will ever hear. Doesn't take a high IQ. Doesn't take special training. Doesn't take deep insight to understand it. I mean, just think about the simplicity of the gospel. Jesus' followers, or Jesus told his followers to go into all the world and preach the gospel to who? All creatures. He didn't say, go speak to the sophisticated. He didn't say, go talk to the scholars. He didn't say, take this message to the select theological elite. If the gospel was complicated and it took a degree in theology to understand it, this command would be ridiculous and hopeless. Take it to everybody. Why? Because it's simple. Secondly, it was shared with the common people of Jesus' day, and they understood it. The Twelve disciples are the classic example of this because they were blue-collar people. Eleven of them were from Galilee, 
Whenever you read Galilee in the, in the Bible, it'll help you to just think of the boot heel. Galilee was the country people, the country folk, the backwoods people were from Galilee. Eleven were from Galilee. The only one who was uptown from Judea was Judas. So you look at the 12 disciples. They were not complex people. They were blue-collar people. They probably had no education. In fact, they probably could not read or write. They were fishermen. One was a hated tax collector. One was a political zealot. Someone has said that the original 12 disciples were remarkably unremarkable. The only theological scholar who became an apostle was Paul. And his great learning was actually a barrier to his acceptance of the truth about Christ. And when God sent him out, guess what? He didn't say, you got all this education in Judaism, you'll be great to go to the Jews. He said, no, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles where they could care less if you have a Jewish theological background. The target of the message that Jesus sent his followers out to share was to the sheep who had no shepherd. It was simple to understand. Now, the religious sophisticates understood it. That's why they killed Jesus. Everybody understood it because it was simple. Third, it was delivered by ordinary people. I love the passage in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John are brought before the religious rulers and the elders and the scribes because they healed a lame leopard and they were preaching the message of Christ. And in verse 13 it says, the religious leaders were amazed because Peter and John were uneducated and untrained. In Acts chapter 8, we're told that persecution came into the church at Jerusalem. And it tells us there in verse 1, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then it says this in verse 4. Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Now let me go back to verse 1 because I left out a phrase. It says, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. The church was scattered, and they went out doing what? Preaching the word. Why? Because it's so simple. Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, he who does not believe shall be condemned. Now, the only way that God can justly condemn those who don't believe is is if the message is simple. Nobody's going to have the excuse, well, I didn't understand. It was over my head. It was too deep. I wasn't intelligent enough to understand the God. No, it's the simplest message you will ever hear. Let me give you one other reason. It didn't take a lot of explaining for people to understand the gospel and respond. The first sermon ever preached after the resurrection was by Peter in Acts chapter 2. And if you look at his message, it's simply this. Jesus died on the cross and he rose again. 
And he's alive today, and he is now Lord of all. What's interesting is he didn't even get to finish his sermon because the people interrupted him and said, what shall we do? And I find that interesting. They didn't interrupt him and say, excuse me, could you explain that a little more because it's really hard to understand. No, they understood the message and they they interrupted Peter and said, what do we do to be saved? And 3,000 people were saved. First message they ever heard. It wasn't even finished. And they were saved. Why? Because it's simple. In Acts chapter 10, Peter took the message to the Gentiles, house of Cornelius. Look at the message. It is that Jesus died, he rose, and he's alive And all who believe will have their sins forgiven. Guess what? Didn't get to finish that sermon either. Before he was even done speaking, the Bible says, the Spirit of God came upon those who heard, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Doesn't take a lot of explaining for the gospel. Why? Because it's simple. When the jailer in Philippi asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? They didn't say, well, you'll need to take some training classes. Let us suggest that you enroll in seminary first and then come back and talk to us. No. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. It's that simple. In fact, it's not just historical facts. It's a person. What did he say? Believe in the Lord Jesus. Now, the facts are important because you have to believe the right things about Jesus. And that's why he warns us in verse 3, there are some people who believe another Jesus. The facts are important, but we don't just believe the historical facts. We don't just believe facts about Jesus the way we believe facts about Abraham Lincoln. Because you see, Jesus died for your sins, he was buried, he rose from the dead, and guess what? He's alive today. So you don't just believe about him, you believe in him because he's alive today. And he wants to come and take over your life because he's alive. That's why Jesus said, I am the way. That's why Jesus said, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. That's why Jesus said, he who believes in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And that's why Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, it's the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. It's him. It's all about him. It's that simple. Second statement. It's the easiest thing you will ever do. Salvation was hard for Jesus. He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in the garden. He endured the cross. He took all the punishment for all sin, for all mankind, for all time on the cross. It was hard for Jesus. But it's easy for you. It's as easy as receiving a gift And yet our tendency is to make it complicated and to make it hard. It's 
since you brought up golf. It's kind of like my golf swing. You know, if I get up to hit a golf ball and I'm thinking about all the things that I'm supposed to do, you know, keep your left arm straight, keep your eye on the ball, keep your arms close to your body as you come back, don't release, keep your weight back, don't, you know, all these things are going through my mind. I end up swinging like Charles Barkley. You ever see him swing? Guy's an athlete. But you can just tell he's thinking, he's so mechanical that nothing's happening right. It's all just, you know, awful. But I've found that if I don't play golf for months, and then I go out and play and I don't care, I play my best golf, which is bogey golf. But it's, it's good. You know, I'm not thinking about it. It's simple. And when it's simple, it works. I have to be honest with you that in my Christian life sometimes, I become mechanical. And I end up making a lot of do's and don'ts, like a list as long as my arm. So I think, you know, I need to do this. And if I do that, and, and I, re- I read the latest book, and that guy said, if I do this, I'll really be spiritual. And the, the latest fad is A, B, C, and you'll be spiritual. And, and you start thinking in lists and rules and regulations and you make it complicated and it becomes mechanical. It was intended to be simple. The Jewish rabbis calculate 613 commands and prohibitions in the Old Testament. You can't even remember all of those. 613 do's and don'ts. The Apostle Paul boils it down in Galatians 5.14 and he says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. What's the word? The whole law, all those commands are fulfilled in one word. That's simple. What's the word? The word is Love. And isn't that what Paul is saying here? He says in verse 3, it's the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. What is devotion to Christ? That's love. I love him. I'm devoted to him. It all boils down to just that. And Paul says it's to be simplicity. That's a word that literally means it's to be singular. You're to have a one-track mind, and that is devotion to Jesus Christ. And then he says it's to be in purity, and that's a word that means to cleanse from defilement. It's to have nothing else mixed in with it. It's to be 100% pure devotion. If my wife made a list every day and said things I want Dan to do, Put it on the refrigerator. You know, cook supper, wash the dishes, take out the trash. I would hate that. In fact, I would rebel against that. That would be hard. But you know what? My wife just wants one thing from me. 
and that is to love her. Singularly and purely. That she's the only one. Out of all the other women in the world, she is the only one that I'm committed to. Her alone and her totally. That's all she wanted. Guess what? When I do that, I cook. Sometimes I wash the dishes, and I sweep the floor. I do those things because I love her, not because she makes lists and tells me I've got to. When we make it simple, it becomes easy to do those things. And see, that's the analogy if you look back at verse 2. The analogy is that we're the bride and Christ is the groom, and if we really love him, if we're really devoted to him, that's all that matters. We don't need lists. We don't need rules. We need to be devoted to him alone, only and totally. Church at Ephesus fell into the trap of making their Christian lives complicated. We're told that they were busy doing, serving, fighting for doctrinal truth. They had lists of things to do. And Jesus said to them in Revelation 2, that's great. But I have this one thing against you. You have left your first love. You have got duty without devotion. You are laboring without love. You have made it complicated when it's really very simple. And that's Satan's tactic, to lead you astray from that simplicity of devotion to Jesus Christ. And guess what? He doesn't have to lead you very far astray to be satisfied. He just has to lead you far enough so that your love for Christ is no longer simple. So that your love for Christ is no longer the singular thing in your life. So that your love is divided. So that it isn't 100% pure devotion. In fact, I think oftentimes he's satisfied just to move us a little bit because if he moves us a lot, we realize it. If he moves us a little bit, we're kind of satisfied with that. I bet if you asked the church at Ephesus, they would say we're a great church. Others would say they were a great church. The reality is they had left their first love. How about you today? Third statement, it's the hardest thing you will ever attempt. You say, Dan, you're confusing me. You just said it was easy. Now you're saying it's hard. Why is it hard to be devoted singularly and totally to Jesus? Let me give you three reasons. Number one. Because you have a powerful and crafty enemy. We just talked about that. He is determined to use any means possible to lead you away from devotion to Christ. When the simple message of the gospel is proclaimed to an unbeliever, when it lands like fertile seed on that person's heart, what happens? Jesus says in the parable of the sower that Satan comes along like the birds and he swoops in 
And he picks up that seed before it can take root in that person's heart and life. You see, the gospel, responding to the gospel is not just a mental thing. It's a spiritual thing. You can understand it mentally. I could lead somebody to faith in Christ before I was saved, long before I was saved, because I'd heard the gospel all my life. I knew what it was. But it never penetrated my heart, because that's a spiritual thing. Paul points here back to the example of Eve. When you think back to the garden, things were pretty good in the garden. Pretty good for Eve. She never had to worry about Adam talking about how good his mother could cook. She never had to worry about Adam comparing her to other girlfriends. She never had to say, Adam, I don't have a thing to wear. Life was good in the garden. Take your time on that one. And life was simple in the garden. They only had one command. You can eat freely from all the trees in the garden, except one. That's a simple command. Don't have to write that one down either. And they had a simple relationship. There was intimacy in her relationship with her husband, Adam. There was intimacy in her relationship with God. He would come down and walk in the garden with them. And the serpent deceived her into looking for greener pasture. And what happened? Life became complex, and life became hard. And we're no different. We have a simple message, the gospel. We have a simple relationship. God loves us unconditionally, and all he wants from us is to love him back. And Satan is there craftily trying to deceive us to move away from that, to make it complicated, to make our relationship religion. That's why it's hard. Secondly, it's hard because though salvation is free, it will cost you everything. When I talk to somebody about faith, I like to use analogies. Faith in Christ is like getting on an elevator. To get on an elevator, you've got to get all on. You can't get half on and half off and go anywhere on an elevator. That's what faith is. Faith is saying, I'm going to put my entire trust in Jesus Christ. In my relationship to Christ, it costs me, as Paul says here, singular and pure, total devotion to Christ. I can't love Christ with some of my heart. I can't love Christ with most of my heart. I have to love Christ with all of my heart. And if he's going to get all of my devotion, guess what? I have to take it away from the other things that I've got it directed toward. Unlike Adam, I have other girlfriends. Or in the analogy here, we are the bride. We have other boyfriends. We have others that we have given our heart to. We have other loves, other things we are devoted to. 
So you see, it's hard because it's not just an act of the mind. It's an act of the will. I have to take my devotion from others and other things and direct it 100% to Jesus Christ. You say, what's it cost me? Well, one of the things it costs you is your pride. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, salvation is not by works so that no one can boast. Salvation is all his doing. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. It was done on the cross, and you can do nothing to add to that. And because you can do nothing to add to your salvation, you have no pride in that. In fact, the Bible tells us you have to come in humility to Jesus Christ in order to receive that gift. I love the story in the Old Testament. I think it's in 2 Kings 5 about Naaman. Naaman was the general of the Syrian army, and he had leprosy, and he heard about Elisha. And he traveled to Elisha to find out if he could, through his God, take care of his leprosy. And Elisha said, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to go down and dunk yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Naaman went over and looked at the Jordan River and said, it's filthy. We got cleaner rivers back in our land. Why would I dunk myself? That's humiliating. And one of his soldiers said, you know, if he had asked you to do some great thing, would you have done it? He said, well, yeah. Well, then why don't you humble yourself and do the simple thing that he's asking you to do? And he went out and he dunked himself seven times in the muddy Jordan River. And the Bible said his skin was white as snow because his leprosy was gone. Why? You have to humble, you have to give up your pride. Secondly, you have to give up your life. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You have to deny yourself to come to Christ. You have to take up your cross. What happens on your cross? You die. You have to die to you to come to Christ. Jesus put it this way. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You try to hold on to your life, you will lose it. If you lose your life for Jesus' sake and the gospel, you'll find it. Cost you your loves as well. Rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, What do I have to do to get eternal life? Jesus talked to him for a while and Jesus knew something about this man, and so he said to the man, I want you to sell everything you've got. Give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Now, why did he say that to that man? He didn't say that to everybody, but he said it to this man. Why? Because that was his love. That was the thing he was devoted to. And we know he was devoted to that because the Bible tells us he went away very sad because he was extremely rich. His love was his money, and he couldn't give it up to come to Christ. Maybe yours is pleasure. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's people-pleasing. Whatever it is, we like the Thessalonians must turn to God from idols 
If we take hold of Christ, we have to take hold of him with both hands, and they have to be empty. They have to be empty because I have let go of the other things. I have gotten on the elevator. I can't stay half on and half off. I have to give him the full devotion of my heart. Let me give you a third reason it's hard. It's hard because it's impossible without God. When the rich young ruler walked away, Jesus said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of people, I think in Sunday school, it probably started in Sunday school class, where they talk about the eye of the needle being a gate in the wall of Jerusalem. If you came late at night and the main gate was closed, they had the eye of the needle, and the camel could get through there, and you had to take all the baggage off the camel so it could squeeze through, and it had to suck its breath in, and it got through, and it went in, and that's a great analogy of how we come to Christ. That's not what Jesus is saying here. You will not find anywhere in history where there is a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. It's a great analogy. Preachers like it, but it's not what Jesus meant. You know why I know that? Because Jesus wasn't talking about something that was difficult. He was talking about something that was impossible. Because Jesus says it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples said, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. To, to save yourself is impossible. I don't care how small you get, how much you try to squeeze through, it doesn't happen. It's impossible. Apart from God. You see, when I got saved, the impossible happened. Because God took someone who was totally devoted to self. He took me. I, I worshiped every day at the shrine of me. And he took me and he transformed me into a new creature who is totally devoted to Jesus Christ. And then despite all the deceitfulness of the enemy, he keeps me devoted, singularly and purely. And that's a miracle. And that's why I have nothing to boast about. It's all him. Because not only is it hard, it's impossible for me apart from Christ. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do a few things. Nothing. Fourth statement. It's the greatest thing you'll ever receive. And when I call it the greatest thing, that's really an understatement. Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 9.15, his indescribable gift. You can't even put it in words what it is. In Ephesians 3.8, he calls it the unfathomable 
riches of Christ. I can understand the message of the gospel, but I cannot even begin to comprehend the blessings in the gospel. Where else will you find forgiveness? Where else will you find fulfillment? Where else will you find peace? Where else will you find joy? Where else will you find purpose that goes beyond the grave? Where else will you find eternal life? Where else will you find pure, unconditional love? Wouldn't you give up your measly life for all that? Your life is about 70 years if you're fortunate. You're investing in eternity. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a man who discovers a treasure in a field. He finds the treasure and he puts it back in the field and covers it back up. And he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. That's logical. Let me tell you something. Unfathomable riches and eternal life are hidden in Jesus. What are you going to do? Will you sell everything else and invest in him? Will you turn your affections from everything else and be devoted to him alone? It's easy. It's simple. It's impossible without him. And it's the greatest thing of all. An old chorus goes like this. All I once held dear, built my life upon. All this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss. Spent and worthless now, compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus. Knowing you. There is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness. And I love you, Lord. The takeaway point today is let's get back to the basics. We're going to close our service with a simple reminder of the simple gospel Bread in a cup, what's it represent? Jesus' body and Jesus' blood, that Jesus died for you and me. He was buried, he rose, and he's alive today. As we prepare to take the bread in the cup, I'm not going to say a public prayer. I'm going to ask you to say your own prayer. And I think for some of you, You need to incorporate in your prayer this kind of confession. Lord Jesus, I've left my first love. And today I'm coming back where I belong. 
I've wandered away from singular and total devotion to you, Lord Jesus. Would you pray that today? And then say, knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. I love you, Lord.